This is our sixth week uh, in our study of the book of James, and so I invite you once again to turn there with me uh, to the book of James. The passage for this morning is once again in the bulletin insert if you want to follow along there. You're welcome to do so. I hope and pray as we talked about last week that the word is finding root in your hearts, bearing fruit in your lives. Remember, James is interested in instructing and encouraging the church, both the original recipients of the letter uh, years ago in the first century, as well as us here today in what true faith is. This morning we turn to just two verses that form a bridge of sorts between the themes that we read about and heard about and talked about in chapter 1 to the teaching of chapter 2 that we were going to beginning that we are going to begin looking at next week together those of you who are here last week remember that he has just rebuked his hearers for hearing and not doing or or at least he has exhorted them to not only hear the word but do the word As we turn to verse 26, he now is going to rebuke for doing the word, but not, not doing the word, but doing that reveals that you haven't really heard. Listen and follow along as I read. If you are able, I'd invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. James chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, picking up where we left off last week, James chapter 1 verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated. We live in a world, we live in a day and age in which at times it's hard to know what is real, what is the truth. You know as well as I do that the, with the, the proliferation of information and technology, we, we seemingly get fooled all the time through the stories that we read, through the pictures that we see, even at times in the videos that we watch. We've even got entire websites these days devoted to helping us expose lies to sparing us from, from being duped and forwarding or, or posting that story that, that just isn't true. Some of you may have heard there was an infamous deception that was exposed uh, earlier this year. In 2012, Thomas James Mace Archer Mills Esquire, quite a name, two hyphens in that name, founded the British Monarchist Society. It was an organization birthed in England that supports and promotes the British monarchy. And for years, 
Thomas has been interviewed by British and international media outlets such as BBC Radio, The Economist, Europe One, NTV Russia, and all kinds of other news outlets on all matters dealing with the monarchy in England. Earlier this year, he even uh, covered the royal wedding that was in the news for a French news channel. And he did so, of course, in this thick, authentic British accent. But there's one problem. Thomas James Mace Archer Mills Esquire isn't British. He was exposed as Tommy Muscatello from upstate New York. He attended college in South Carolina, and his dad is Italian. And the way he talks, his accent, well, he learned that accent first in a high school production of the musical Oliver, in which he played a British role. It's an amusing and I think probably largely harmless, a lot of mud on the faces of a lot of networks. It's a harmless story of one man through his speech deceiving not just an entire nation, but an international world into thinking that he was someone that he really wasn't. James, this morning in these two very compact, very pithy and punchy verses declares that in terms of our beliefs, that's impossible. There's no deceiving when we open our mouths. Three truths I want us to consider and meditate on for the next few minutes as we walk through these two verses. And the first one is this. Your words expose your faith. Your words expose your faith. You see, unlike Tommy's successful ruse in regards to what you really believe, how you speak in the mundane moments of your life, in the everyday moments of your life, will always give you up. They say that talk is cheap, and James will address that in just a moment. But talk is also very telling. Abe Lincoln, in a moment of proverbial wisdom, is quoted as saying this, better to remain silent and be thought of a fool than to speak up and remove all doubt. Your speech reveals your heart. And that's the gist of verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Now I want to pick this apart for just a moment. Then I want to start with the word religious. James uses a Greek word that we have translated, our translations have translated as religious. It's a rare term that's rarely used in the New Testament. But the reason I want to camp out on it for a moment is because it doesn't carry the connotations or it didn't carry the connotations in James' day that it might carry with us here today. You see, the word in our context, the word religion, is so often used negatively. 
Certainly when the world labels someone as, oh, he's just religious. It's often meant as something condescending, something less than. But even in the church, we can despise the term, can't we? Have you ever heard the phrase, oh, it's not a religion, it's a relationship, right? You've heard that? Well, I appreciate what people are trying to say when they say that, what they're trying to get at. James is not here railing on religion. James is not being critical of the outward practice of the rituals that attend our worship of God. He's not. What he's wanting to do is hammer home that you can participate in all the outward practices of the Christian faith, totally deceiving yourselves that you are okay when you actually have a heart that is far, far from God. One of the telltale signs is how you talk to others. Your words expose your faith. James here, we've already established that James is the brother, the half-brother of Jesus, our Savior, and James is here mirroring, echoing the teaching of his brother. Speaking to the disciples of the Pharisees in Matthew 15, Jesus says, what comes out of a mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. Now, obviously, when James put these words with a punch into his letter to the church, of the first century, they were obviously dealing with something. There was some problem with the way they were talking. We don't know exactly what that problem was. Was it gossip in the community of the church? Was there coarse joking and and filthy talk being spewed by so-called Christians who are just trying to fit in with the Joneses? They're just trying to fit in with the culture. Were there instances of bearing false witness against others? We don't know what the situation specifically was, but whatever it was, we ought not assume that this was a message just for them. Of course, no, it's not. Our flesh, my flesh, hasn't outgrown this struggle with my mouth, with the way I speak. In fact, maybe even more... (laughs) Maybe even more this message is for us today, and that's why I I phrase the point not just your tongue or your speech, but your words, because we put words out there in all sorts of different ways these days, don't we? We throw out texts, we throw out tweets, we post blog posts, Facebook arguments, whatever it is. James says, remember Know that your words expose your faith, and therefore you need to examine those words. You need to ask what those words say about you. Why did I just say that? Why did I just write that? And then, as he says in the end of chapter, or in the end of verse 26, we need to bridle our tongues. James brings up this imagery, this imagery that he will soon return to. To begin making the point that our tongues are like beasts. Like horses with bridles, bits in their mouths and bridles around their mouths. They need to be kept under control. 
And we're going to return to this very subject of, of our speech, of our mouth, of what James says about the tongue. So I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on it today. But let me just say here four practical things about bridling our tongue, about this recognition that our words expose our faith, this intentional, okay, how can I be intentional with my words? Four things. The first is this. If our speech is a reflection of our hearts, then we must begin with hearts saturated in the gospel. Now, maybe that's assumed, but it ought not be. Hearts that know who they are before God, hearts that remember and constantly reflect upon Jesus' love for them, hearts that are daily repenting of sin, humbling themselves, asking for the, God, asking for the grace of God's Spirit to speak with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control, Our hearts must be saturated in the good news. Secondly, let me just turn to Solomon and the wisdom of Proverbs. Don't talk so much. Don't write so much. Proverbs 10, 19, when words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Then when you do talk, slow down. Proverbs 12, 18, there is one whose rash words are like sword thrust, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. And then finally, choose your words for others. Conscious of them. Conscious of the power of what you say to them. Eager to bring blessing, Proverbs 16, 24. Gracious words are like honeycomb, Proverbs 25, 11. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold. Now, of course, we could talk, we could talk much more. And we will, because James will return to our tongues. It's important. But for now, don't be deceived. Your words expose your faith. Guard your mouth, James is reminding us. That's the first thing we're confronted with this morning. The second is this. Remember, James is talking about true faith, and he's shift, it feels kind of like he's shifting gears pretty, pretty quickly and pretty powerfully. But if our words expose your faith, He's going to continue to talk about some other things that expose your faith. So our second truth is God calls you to a faith that helps the helpless. God calls you to a faith that helps the helpless. Oh, here's James' practical religion. Remember, James doesn't disdain the word religion. He doesn't say this is about relationship, not about outward symbols. Instead, he says, show me your religion. 
Show the world your religion. Show the Lord your religion. Give evidence of a faith inside you that is vibrant, that is real, that is true, pure and undefiled before God the Father. A heart that, or excuse me, a faith that reflects the heart of the Father and the life of his Son. Now, James is not speaking here. It's just one verse, verse 27, where we are now. James is not speaking here of what true religion is in its entirety. Of course not. More could be said about what our faith, what religion is supposed to be looking like. But here he picks two representative classes of people that have always been close to the heart of God. Always. Two kinds of people who desperately need help. Orphans and widows. Now remember, James is writing in the first century of our world. Before the age of of life insurance policies, before the age of state-run orphanages, when a child was was abandoned, when a widow was left alone, these were desperate circumstances. And so Yahweh, God himself, said, my covenant community, my people need to step in and care first for those who are their own, who might be in these circumstances, but then even beyond that, to those who are our neighbors. God had from the very beginning expressed this desire, Exodus twenty-two, twenty-two: you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child, if you mistreat them, they will cry to me and I will surely hear them, says the Lord. Deuteronomy 14, 21, the, excuse me, 29, the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow who are within your town shall come and eat and be filled that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. And then the Lord would speak out against his people concerning this through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 10. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression and ter- to turn aside from the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people, the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil, that they may make the fatherless their prey. And so because of this heart of the father for the orphan and for the widow. What is David, the man after God's own heart? How does he worship? How does he instruct God's people to worship as he writes them hymns, as he writes them songs to sing? Psalm 68, sing to God, sing praises to his name, lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord, father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. If this is our God, then this is what his people must be about. A people of grace, a people of mercy, a people of compassion. And don't forget, James is writing this letter to a people in the first century who are suffering, right? They've got their own problems. They're going through their own trials, their own testing of the faith. 
And James still says, this is what true faith looks like. This is what true religion looks like. Look outside of yourselves, church, to the neediest in our community. This is true religion. Oh. The call to us individually, as families, as a church body is no different how are we loving the fatherless and the widow? It's a hard question, and, and it's maybe even harder for us because it's easy for us in this day and age to rely on life insurance, state-run orphanages, state support systems, and indeed, those things are a blessing, brothers and sisters. Don't Don't get me wrong, but we can't hide behind those things. One commentator lamented. I want to read a quote that I read from him this week. He says, one of the saddest dimensions of our day is that so many Christians are so absorbed with their seminars, charts, notebooks, study groups, and discipling techniques that they don't have time I might say, don't make time to bake a pie, to send a card, to mow the grass for the sick, the elderly, and the lonely. It's easy to be a good Pharisee when the world cries for a good Samaritan. John put it this way in 1 John 3, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and it closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed or truth. This is not easy to do, this faith of mercy. Things are, things are complex these days, maybe more complex than they were in the day of James. Con artists are plentiful, right? If we extend the helpless beyond just that two, those two representative groups that James gives us. It takes time. It takes intention. I'm right there with you, brother and sister. This, remember, this, this has beat me up before it's beating you up. It takes time. It takes intentionality. It takes pressing in to those around us. And it's hard, frankly, for some of us to find the need. This is why we have a mercy team. It's why we have a diaconate. This is why we built a partnership with agencies in our region that help us know how to do this and connect with those in need. I don't know what you're doing, all the specifics of your doing. I don't know what the Lord by His Spirit is calling you to this morning. He may be calling you to the simplest of things, a visit, a card, a pie, a simple act of service, or the Lord might be calling you to something radical. Adoption. Whoa. One of you has helped show the way for us. One of our own has opened up her home for months and months and months as a refuge for a young mother and her children. 
Praise God for that. Because God calls us to a faith that helps the helpless. Well, as we close, one final truth this morning. God calls you also to a faith that is set apart. Your speech is just the beginning. Your help for the helpless is a necessary follow-through on what is in your heart. But the Lord wants more than godly speech. He wants more than social action, as important as those two things are. He wants a life that in every area sets itself apart from the world's agenda and from the world's values. The phrase he uses is unstained from the world living separately, distinctly from anything that is not consistent with the pure character of the Father. This is not monastic life, but this is an intentional life. The world that James speaks of is the hostile ideological environment in which we live, the culture that we the, the cultural air that we breathe that is not conducive to a life of Christ-likeness. And so we exist in the world, but not of the world. Jesus' prayer for his people in John 17, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask you that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. And then Paul, of course, encourages the church at Rome, a passage familiar, to not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. In one sense, just as we put a bridle on our tongues to keep our sinful flesh and tendencies from showing their presence, so we need to guard our minds concerning the world's way of thinking, the world's way of behaving. Just like, just like the tongue, this is a huge, this is a huge subject. This is nothing less than a, than a Christian worldview which works itself out into every fiber of our being. We need to think and we need to live differently than the world, unstained from the world. Our priorities. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these other things will be added to you. The way we entertain ourselves, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, think about these things. Our sexuality, I have made a covenant with my eyes not to look with lust on a woman. How can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. What we spend our money on. As far as the rich in this age, charge them not to be haughty, Paul says, but to set their hopes or, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, how we treat those who have wronged us. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. God calls you to a faith that is set apart. Lives of holiness, lives of purity, unstained from the world, this is what we are called to. I don't know how the Lord is speaking to you this morning by His Spirit in your unique experience and your unique circumstance. Maybe He's reminding you that true religion bridles its tongue. You need to double down on your speech, on your loose lips. 
Maybe he's reminding you that you've too long sat on the sidelines. Find the helpless. Help the helpless. Or maybe you just have not been discerning. Your life looks much like the lives of everyone else at school, everyone else at work. How are you keeping yourself unstained from the world? Hard truths. May God give us the grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for your servant, James, inspired by your spirit to speak this truth to us. And I pray that you would take it now, that it would find root, that it would bear fruit, however you see fit. Father, we want to be a people who show themselves truly as your people. Show us the way we should go, that we might glorify your name, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.